How is everybody? <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> so let's just get it all out of the way, right? No, that's <laughs> good, that's good. <laughs> it's funny because sometimes I joke around, I'm like, man, are you guys awake out there? And then whenever I say that, I instantly regret it because, you know, then we start doing that stuff. <laughs> but uh, hey, glad you guys are here. If, uh, if you've never been to the church before, um, man, I don't know if you guys, this, and this isn't like a boast on me or, or I guess not anyone except for God, but we have like, we have such a great church environment here. If you've never been to this church, we really do. Um, if, you, if you are new to our church or maybe you just started coming or this is your first time, and I say this not because, you know, I'm here and all this stuff, but it is some of the neatest, most eclectic, strangest group of people that God could have possibly put together. And I just... I absolutely love it. Every single week, I get to look out over all you guys, and I'm like, man, we, like, this, we shouldn't be together, you know? But um, it's a lot of fun, and I'm so proud of our church, and just really, really glad you guys are here. And again, if you're new to the church, I mean, you're in for something special, not because of the music or even the teaching. It's just, uh, you're just around some really cool people. Um, if you get a chance, watch the Life of the Experience for the last couple of weeks. Um, my friend Lena just did her Life of the Experience video. Fantastic story. You need to watch that. Um, very brilliant young woman. I uh, did a great story. And then uh, a really great couple the week before that did a really great story. And um, go back and watch those if you get a chance. It's just kind of neat to see the people that you may be sitting around and what God has done in their life. Okay, so we've been going through the Gospel of John. And if you've been here, uh, we've been kind of walking through this slowly and hope you guys have enjoyed it. It's been a really good book of the Bible so far. We're only in chapter six. We did half a chapter six last, last weekend and we're gonna do the other chap, uh, half a chapter six this weekend, and we've been laying down fundamentals. I mean, like simple groundwork stuff and trying to ask ourselves hard questions. And the, and the, the, the topic that we talked about last week was this. Jesus just fed the 5,000, which in, in all uh, actuality was probably some of the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 people, right? So he served a lot of people miraculously with some loaves of bread and some sardines and served this huge crowd. And he goes across the Sea of Galilee, gets to the other side, and this big crowd is waiting for him. And then the crowd from the day before goes across the sea. And so tens of thousands of people are following around Jesus. And what we talked about last week is a lot of the people who are following Jesus, following Jesus is kind of a loose term. These people who are, who are seeking him out, most of them did not have proper motives. They weren't doing it for the right reasons. So we asked ourselves last week, essentially, why are we doing this? What do we want to get out of this? Why did we come to church this weekend? Why are we studying the Word of God? What do we want to get out of Jesus? What do, we, what do we want to give to Jesus? What are our motives? And we ask that question, okay? Now, we're going to finish chapter 6 today, and we're going to talk about a couple of things. The first one is this. We're going to ask ourselves the questions because we're going, to be, we're going to be honest with each other today. We're going to be straightforward with each other today. We're going to ask ourselves, where do we go for fulfillment? Not where should we go. You're in a Christian church. You know what I'm going to say. We should go to Jesus, right? It's where I should go. It's where you should go. But that's not where we go all the time. So we're going to be honest and assess where do we go to find fulfillment, to find comfort, identity, validation, where we're going to go for that. And then if we choose to go the Jesus route, as we're going to see today, that is not always easy. To go the Jesus route, to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ takes effort. It takes work. Not that our works earn our salvation, but it takes effort to be in an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? So we're going to be honest with each other today. If you've never been to this church, we are very transparent 
very honest, very clear, okay? So if you have been to this church, you know what to expect out of me. I know what to expect out of you. We're just going to be straightforward with each other. So at the end of this today, um, we'll get into some touchy stuff. I mean, that's just where the Bible takes us sometimes. But if we can just let our guard down, if we can be thick-skinned, and if we can just be honest, we'll be fine, okay? All right? So I'm going to pray. We'll jump into the lesson today. Um, you guys missed it last night. I always make fun of Mitch. He's leading worship this weekend. I always make fun of him because he usually wears like the brightest like white sneakers ever. And I always tease him and call him names. And so yesterday, uh, I got to keep people humble. So yesterday I wore like the brightest white shoes ever. And I felt so strange walking around with them. And everyone was asking about my white shoes. I'm like, only reason I'm wearing them is to make fun of somebody. So, uh, uh, but I didn't do that today. So you missed it. Anyways, I'm going to pray. Let's jump into this. And we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Uh, God, I love you. God, we are so blessed. Lord, we're so blessed. As we get into this season, Lord, as we get into this time of the year, Lord, let us remember how blessed we are, God. Let us remember how good we have it, Lord. Let us remember what's truly important, our friends, our family, of course, God, our relationship with you. Lord, let us focus on eternal things, not temporary materialistic things, God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you bless every church in our community. I pray that you bless all the nonprofits in our community. Lord, especially the ones that are helping the homeless right now during this time of the year when it's cold. Uh, God, pray that you bless them and help them, Lord, and give them the resources they need to help people that, that, uh, that will accept their help, God. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. Open up our ears today. Open up our eyes. Give me wisdom as I teach. And I pray, Lord, that everything I say honors you. And I pray, God, that we receive your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament, if you have a Bible. We're starting in chapter 6, verse 28, you should have a notes handout. Uh, if you have the version, the Bible app on your phone, bottom right button, I think, is more. Um, and it'll, uh, if, I think if you click on live, our church will pop up and everything's there for you, okay? I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to explain it, and we'll see where the Lord takes us. Got a lot of ground to cover today, but we'll, uh, we'll get there. What can we do to perform the works of God, they said. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Jesus told them, No one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you have seen me, yet you did not believe. Like the Jewish people, we do this a lot too. The Jewish people wanted to work their way into heaven. They wanted to know what can we do to earn God's favor. And what I've told you this for several weeks now, what Jesus says is it's not what you can do. You need to believe in what I can do, Jesus says. You need to believe in my work, not your work. So here's what the people, the mindset of the people. A lot of these people are the same ones that have seen Jesus do multiple miracles, and a lot of them are the same ones that saw him feed 15 to 20,000 people with some loaves of bread and a couple of sardines. And after seeing these miraculous things, what is their response? They say, okay, that was impressive, God, but what are you going to do now? 
That was impressive, but what are you going to do now to make us believe? And what we see from the crowd is something that stings a little bit because it applies to us too. The crowd is selfish, they are shallow. They talk about the miracles of the past. Hey, Moses did this and we've seen you do some stuff, but essentially they said, what are you gonna do for us lately? What have you done for us lately? And like them, we often forget all the different provisions that God has given us throughout our life. And we are only thinking about right now, the moment, thinking that God's just going to abandon us. And we forget that God has taken care of us time after time after time after time. And so we look up at him and say, well, what are you going to do for me now? Like God owes us something, right? And that's not a good mindset to have. In the Old Testament, they would build altars. God would do a huge miraculous thing and they would build an altar, not because they just loved stacking up stones, right? But they would build these altars so future generations would walk past and say, that's where God parted the Jordan River. That's where God did this miracle. That's where God delivered Abraham. That's where God did all these. And it would help them remember the provisions of the past. But these people had obviously forgotten, right? So their focus was completely backwards. Okay, if you haven't been with us, every time it talks about bread in this chapter, it's not talking about wonder bread. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about literal bread. It's talking about figurative bread, the bread of life. And these people listening to Jesus were thinking with their stomachs, they're thinking with their physical self. They can't get past the physical and the literal to think about the metaphorical and to think about the spiritual. But Jesus is trying to tell them, stop worrying about what you physically need. Let's talk about what you spiritually need. Now, God knows that we need physical things. We know this because Jesus says in Matthew, I know you need food, I know you need clothing, I know you need water and shelter, I know you need those things, but seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus is trying to convince these people, I know you need physical things taken care of, but even more importantly than that, you need your soul taken care of. You need your spirit taken care of. So what do they say? Well, they say what they should have said. They said, sir, give us that bread. Give us the bread that you're speaking of. And that would have been the perfect response if they meant it, if it was genuine, but they didn't mean it. So here's the thing. All of us want eternal satisfaction. All of us want salvation. But just like we have to eat to stay alive, I hope everyone knows this, right? You have to eat food and drink water to stay alive. If you need some water, there's some dripping right from the ceiling here. But you need to eat food and drink water to stay alive. And just like you have to eat and drink to stay physically alive, we must consume Jesus to stay spiritually alive. The bread of life must be consumed every single day. And Jesus promises, if you consume me daily, you won't go hungry. You won't go thirsty. You will be spiritually taken care of. Okay, next part. So everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life and will raise Him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews started complaining about Him because He said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They were saying, 
isn't this the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How can he say that he's come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Let me pause there for a second. You see how repetitive Jesus is? He's repetitive because they're not getting it. He's a teacher, so he says the same things over and over and over and over, trying to get this to sink in. That's not going to work. So in a second, we're going to see he raises this a little bit. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's where he takes it up a notch. He keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again, but it's not registering with him. So he's going to shock them. Okay, I'll get to that here in a second. So what we see here, though, is Jesus is going to take us into some kind of theologically deep waters for a minute. He says that the ones that God has sent him, he takes care of. Now, what that gets into is a theological term called election. Election is basically what that means is, is that God chooses certain people to give to Jesus for Jesus to use for his purposes. Uh, a good example of that would be the Apostle Paul, right? So Saul, who became Paul, was not looking for Jesus. In fact, he was looking for people who loved Jesus so he could persecute them. So he's traveling around one day. Jesus shows up, knocks him on his butt, and says, you're going to do this for me. You're going to serve me. You're going to work for me. You're going to suffer for me. And Paul didn't have a say-so in the matter. Got his name changed by Jesus, and then he became the Apostle Paul, okay? So that's someone who was elected. Now, if that one's elected, does that mean everyone who's not elected is lost? I don't believe so, and I'll tell you why. This means that other people who are maybe not chose by God to be given to Jesus for a certain reason, there are others that will approach him. And it says, Jesus says, I will not turn them down. I will not cast them out. A good example of that is the royal official. If you go back a couple of chapters, there was a man that Jesus wasn't looking for, but he ran 15 miles up a hill so he could have an encounter with Christ. And when he had an encounter with Christ, his life changed, his family's life changed, they were saved and changed. He did not deny them. So what this brings up is this. It brings up these two different things that people want to go to long extremes to be on one team or the other, and they pit these two sides against each other. So the argument about are we predestined or do we have free will, this argument has been raging for 600 years. Guys like John Calvin and Theodore Beza and Jacob Arminius who wrote these things and fought about these. And quite frankly, guys, those guys wouldn't fight about these things as much as we fight about these things. But they came up with kind of these ideas, right? And those things are fun to talk about. Are we predestined? Do we have a choice? It's fun to talk about. But if we're not careful... Minor things like that that are not essential to our salvation can become a distraction. So let me clear this up. Does the Bible teach predestination? Yes. Does the Bible teach free will? Yes. Both of these things. Corey, that doesn't make sense. That's because God is beyond you. 
He's beyond me. And if God wasn't majestic, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. So there are some things in the Bible that are not meant to be explained. They are simply meant to be presented. Things like predestination, things like the Holy Trinity. Wait a second, God is one and three simultaneously? Yes, the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father and the Holy Spirit is, yes, all of those things. Do I understand it? No, I'm not meant to. I don't understand omnipresence which means that God can be everywhere at one time, which means if all of us bowed our heads and closed our eyes and all of us prayed, God can give every single one of us 100% of his attention. Doesn't make sense to me. It's not supposed to make sense to me, at least not yet. It's meant to be presented, but not explained. The closer I get to God, the more comfortable I am saying, God, I just don't know everything about you. I'm fine with that. I'm becoming more comfortable. What we do know is this is that God has given some people to Jesus for a special purpose. They have been elected, right? So the Savior does the Father's will. And one of the aspects of the Father's will is he guards these ones that have been given to him. Now, what this is called, this is just a fancy term, it's called the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And all that means is this, is that if we are committed to Christ, this is so important, if we are committed to Christ, we can have confidence that God is actively protecting us, actively kind of of wrapping his arms around, saving us all the time, not just eternally, but all the time, working on our behalf and working to keep us safe. We know that and we can have confidence in that. That's great, right? And here comes the party poopers. Uh, otherwise known as the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees come in, and if you have not been here, they're kind of the bad guys, not all of them, but the majority of them. They come into the scene, and of course, they're like the negative Nellies, right? They start grumbling. They start complaining. They say, how can he say that he came down from heaven? We know Joseph. We know his dad. We know his mom. And so they were complaining. And now this isn't a new thing. The Pharisees had literally been complaining for thousands of years, When Moses was taking all the Jews from Egypt to the promised land, they saw God drop manna from heaven. They saw water come out of a rock. They saw a pillar of fire. They saw God's presence on the mountain, and they still complained, right? They still complained. Some people will complain no matter how much proof or what you do for them. And there was a group of people like that around Jesus. So he knows this, right? Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows their attitudes and their their, their motives. So he interrupts him and he says, guys, stop whining. Stop complaining. Now, the Pharisees could not see how Jesus and God connected. And that's not because Jesus didn't give them proof. Not only did Jesus do these miracles that should have been enough proof. If you go back into the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament validates Jesus, predicted Jesus, talked about Jesus in detail. And so he had proof. The problem with the people is, is that they didn't want to see the proof. They didn't want to see the truth because it contradicted what they wanted. Now, here's the thing. Here's the analogy. So the only way to be saved is if the Father pulls us in, okay? So the Father pulls us in. But if we refuse that pull, I'm not talking about once or twice. I'm talking about if our life is in rebellion to God long enough, if we refuse the pull of God long enough and and, and ignore the pull of God long enough, Our connection to him dulls. Eventually, God starts to give us over to what Romans 128 calls a reprobate mind, or some of your translations may say a worthless mind. 
to where our ears get clogged and we don't hear the Lord so well. Our eyes get foggy and we don't see the Lord so well. And that's a very dangerous place for us to end up. So what that teaches us is this. Guys, this is a very important slide. That a relationship with God, right? Just like our marriage, a relationship with God is two-sided. Listen, here's the thing. Salvation is never achieved unless the Lord pulls us in, right? Unless the Lord draws us in, we cannot be saved. But our salvation is never consummated without us having a willingness to hear God without us having a willingness to be pulled by God. So our salvation is only possible if God tugs on us, but it's only consummated or completed if we allow him to pull us forward. So it's two-sided, okay? And to go to one extreme or the other either leaves us imbalanced or just leaves us with very, very bad theology. So salvation comes from faith, but faith is not a destination. Listen, Just like when you put this ring on your finger, that is not the end of your marriage. That is the beginning of your marriage. So when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior or whatever the protocol is or the sentence we're told to say, whenever we do that, that is the launching pad to a beautiful relationship. It is not the end of it. You have not arrived yet. That we still have an intimacy to create and a relationship to create with God our Father, okay? So Jesus does like a billion mic drops in the New Testament, right? In the Gospels. And we're about to see one right here. So the metaphor for the bread of life continues on, but they're not listening, right? So Jesus is going to take it up a notch. And so he says, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat it every day. They're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And he says, and that's my flesh, right? And at that point, they're like, what? And he's not talking about communion yet. That hasn't happened yet. What he's starting to talk about is he's starting to talk about the cross. There's going to come a time where I'm going to give my flesh, I'm going to give my blood, and you have to consume. You have to apply what the cross did to your life. That's how you are saved. That's how you are sustained. That's how you're going to make it to the other side. And so what Jesus did is he shocked them. He used a little bit of shock value. That's what he did. And he used a very graphic analogy of eating flesh. This would have stunned the crowd especially the religious folks, the like, hyper-conservatives. What in the world does he talk about? But he wanted to hammer this point home, right? He wanted to make a statement. He wanted to say that the cross, what he's about to do, is only effective when we reach out and embrace the grace that the cross produces, when we reach out and embrace the liberation and the freedom that the cross produces, when we apply the sacrifice, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, when we apply that to our lives, then we're made new. Then we live forever. Okay, so if you're not a believer in here, this is the most, this is Christianity 101. I'm talking about the lowest, like, common denominator of our Christian faith, okay? We must know that the source of the bread of life, the source of eternity, the source of living forever is Jesus. That's simple, right? Simple stuff. We must also know that in order to consume the bread of life, it means that we do it daily. How do we do that? We pray. We read the word of God. We build a relationship with Jesus. That is so important. It's so simple. But we must continue to feed on Jesus. Feed on Jesus. And the only way that it's even possible that we have this access to God is through the cross. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. That's the only way that we even have the channel opened up for us to communicate with God the Father is because of what Jesus did on the cross, okay? Short part, and then we got one more part to go, and it's a good one. 
At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your fathers ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said all of these things while teaching in the synagogue. So the crowd was still stuck on the literal. I said this earlier. They can't get past the physical. They're still thinking in in physical, earthly terms. They're not thinking in spiritual terms, heavenly terms. So since he still has not gotten their attention by telling them that they need to eat his flesh, he takes it up one more notch and says, you also need to drink my blood. Which this would have blatantly broke the law if he was being literal. Of course, he's not being literal. He's being figurative. But if he was being literal, this would have broke the law. There was a a law written during the time of Leviticus that said you cannot eat any meat that still has blood in it. Well, Corey, does God like, you know, dislikes medium rare steaks? No, that's not it. It was a health issue that if we were to eat meat with blood in it, we would get sick. And so God forbid that in a time when they didn't have doctors and things like that, right? So it was forbidden by the law. But again, Jesus is not speaking literal. Jesus is speaking figuratively, and he's pointing towards the cross. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood is applying the cross to our lives. So what he's starting to set up is this, simply teaching that salvation only comes through the cross. Now, if you don't know this about the Bible, Jesus is not always literal when he talks. In fact, he's quite often figurative or metaphorical. In John 15, when he says he's a vine, Jesus was not literally a vine. When he said he was the door, he's not literally the door. Sometimes he spoke in metaphors. And so right here, he's speaking in a metaphor. And the metaphor of eating his his flesh, drinking his blood, means that we continually feed off him. So listen, after our initial salvation... After all of us say, I gave my life to Jesus, right? We got married, Jesus and I. He's my husband, I'm his bride. After that, to remain in that marriage, we must continually feed on him. We must continually apply the cross. We must continually pray and read the word of God. There is such a bad theological movement right now in North America that thinks we can pray a prayer one time when we're a teenager and live however the heck we want. That is not a healthy relationship. Amen? It is a continual growing together with our husband. If I got married to my wife and kept sleeping with other women, that is dysfunctional. That will end in divorce. Same thing with God. He will not have any other God's women before him. He will not, or I'm sorry, men, if he's our husband, he will not have other partners before him. He is jealous of us. He wants us, and he wants us every day. He wants us continually. And so he's saying all this in the synagogue. 
He's offending all of these Jewish people on like their home turf, right? Right in the middle of their synagogue. And what's interesting about that is this, Jesus never does anything by accident. Everything Jesus does, he's intentional. He's strategic about it. And he was strategically teaching in the temple courtyard, right? So he's in the temple courtyard. Here's the symbolism in this. The temple is where everyone brought their sacrifices. They brought their hard work, they brought their best, laid it down, and that did not remove sin, it just pushed it forward a little bit. Jesus stands in the place where they brought their work and he said, a time is coming where your work is going to end, just trust in my work. My work is gonna relieve your debt. My work is gonna relieve all these sin. Your, your, your futile attempts of reconciling you and God are gonna be gone and I'm gonna reconcile God for you. I'm gonna reconcile this relationship, okay? Now, everything is going great for the crowd, right? They're loving Jesus and it's about to turn, okay? When Jesus starts talking about commitment, that's when people don't like Jesus. Here we go, watch what it says. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, they asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Let me pause there for a second. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if the truth offends you, would you rather me just do some magic tricks for you? Would you rather me zap up to heaven and come back down? Was that what you want to see? Do you want to see a show or do you want to know the truth? That's what Jesus is asking, right? Here we go. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From, the moment, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter, he was the leader of the twelve. Simon Peter answered, listen to this, guys. Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you 12? Yet one of you is the devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. Listen, use your imagination. Imagine if you were a Roman or a Greek, you have never heard of Jesus Christ, and you're reading the Gospel of John, and you get to the end of this part, and you're like, oh my gosh, one of the 12 is gonna, one of the 12 is gonna betray him. Imagine hearing about Judas for the first time in reading this. That would have been huge. Okay, try to wrap your brain around this one, guys. We're gonna have to really like struggle to use our imagination. Not everyone who says they're a Christian actually follows Jesus. So we live, <laughs> cynicism, woo. Um, so we live in a culture that claims to be 70% Christian. I don't know if you watch TV, listen to the news, listen to music or any of those things, popular culture. I'm not sure the philosophy and ideals of our culture reflect a 70% Christian population. It leads me to believe that 70% of our population is not followers of Jesus. Many who call themselves followers of Jesus <laughs> cannot stomach the thought of spiritual cannibalism. 
What that means is this. We all want Jesus to save us, but when we talk about consuming him every single day, Jesus has taught belief. We're into that. Application, yes, that makes life better. But then he brings up commitment, and that's where the problem starts. I have to be personally committed. So, listen, this may be one of the most important slides I show you today. We see that the religious elite are complaining, and we expect that, right? We expect the Pharisees to complain. But now we see because the teaching of Jesus is difficult, not difficult to understand. It's extremely simple to understand. It's difficult to apply because it's an everyday application. And so what happened was this, is when all the Christians, all these tens of thousands of Jesus followers heard that they had to make a personal commitment to Christian living, they're out. They're out. Do you want to know what the cancer of Christianity in modern-day America is? This is the cancer of Christianity. And don't feel so bad. I'm going to take part credit, part responsibility. The cancer in Christianity is this, is that the church is requiring and the congregation is very, very comfortable with way too little commitment to Jesus Christ. Let me say it one more time. The church has not challenged you. We've not held you up to a high standard. We have not corrected you, reproved you. There is not church discipline. There is not church encouragement. There is not good education from the church to the congregation. We have not pushed you to be better. And the church is completely okay with that. The congregation says, cool, we didn't want to do too much anyways. Don't correct me. Don't tell me that I need to stop sleeping with my boyfriend. Don't tell me that I need to change what I'm looking at and what I'm taking in. Don't tell me that I have to stop looking at porn. Don't tell me that I have to change how I treat other people. I want a savior. I want to be fed. I want to be physically taken care of. I want to have enough money in the bank, but to change my life? And the church hasn't challenged that. Man, what the church has done is we say, if you come to church, we're going to have, you know, freaking Easter bunnies jump out of planes with $100 bills and give you iPads, right? Please come, please come, please come. That's not Christian. That's not Jesus. We're going to see here in a second that Jesus ran off tens of thousands of people. And so what he says is he speaks the truth to them and he starts to see the crowd get thin. And Jesus says, hey, does does that offend you? Does it offend you what I said? Does the truth push you away? Is it offensive that I tell you that I know better than you? Is it offensive for me to say that you need to change the way you think and act? Not because Jesus is a tyrant, because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus knows that, and he says you need to change, but they're offended by that. Now listen, do I like being corrected? Of course I don't. I said that last week. I hate criticism. But what I'm learning as I mature in my faith is that I have started to welcome the correction of God because I know the correction of God is for my benefit. Where do you get that from, Corey? Jesus said, I discipline you because I love you. Coming from a a, a father that never disciplined me, I long for the discipline of God. I long for the discipline and the correction. Is it always fun? No, but I know that he's looking out for me. I know he wants something better for me. Listen, let me get off on a tangent here for a second. If I call you out on something, it's not because I don't love you. It's because I love you tremendously. If I look at your Facebook and you're doing something that is contradictory to the Bible and I get a hold of you and say, you need to stop that. It's not because I'm a jerk. It's because I've dedicated my life to loving God's people. 
And when your small group leader says it, or when your parents say it, or when your friends say it, it's not because they don't love you. Step back and think logically for a second. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't take the time to get a hold of you and to speak that into your life. So when it boils down to commitment, many walked away because ultimately they didn't believe. They believed that Jesus was the son of God, but they didn't believe he was enough. They didn't believe that his provision was enough. They didn't believe his grace was enough. They couldn't get past them. They couldn't get past what they wanted. Man, I bet Judas was sweating bullets, right? He's one of the 12 and he's back there behind Jesus, probably like, oh my God, they're gonna figure me out. And Peter speaks for the 12. He says, Jesus, we're good. We love you. We're behind you. And Judas knew he wasn't behind him. And so he turns around, Jesus, right? He says, one of you is gonna be full of the devil. One of you is wrong. And so listen, in that moment, Jesus was not cool. In that moment, Jesus was not popular. Tens of 20,000 people, tens of thousands of people around him. He says this and you just start to see him just, just dissipate, right? And so they all start to leave. And by the time he's done speaking, he's only got 12 left. <laughs> and Jesus turns around and looks at him. He says, do you guys want to leave too? Do you guys want to leave too? Now look, look at the difference between Jesus and modern day Christian leaders. Modern day Christian leaders, man, we're so worried about offending you guys. Man, I just want to say something that's going to keep them here. Like, I got to build up the church bigger so I can get that TV show and that website and that new book out. And I want to make sure I'm famous so I can have CoreyTrimble.com and we'll make it more about me than we ever make it about Jesus. Maybe I'll tell you some funny cultural analogies or maybe I'll show a Star Wars clip so you guys will keep coming back, right? We'll touch on the Bible a little bit, but not too much because I don't want to put you away because my livelihood will be affected by it. And Jesus just presents the truth. Jesus just comes with the hard truth, the truth that liberates us and sets us free. Freaking Star Wars clips are not gonna set you free. The Bible's gonna set you free. The word of God is gonna set you free. And we often talk about sacrifice, right? We live in the most free, liberated country that has ever existed. You can go out in our parking lot and burn a flag, rip up a Bible, or you can go on MTSU's campus and tell them they're all gonna go to hell. You can do all this in our country. We have that kind of freedom. And do you know what's happening to Christianity in North America? Flipping tanking right now. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know where Christianity is flourishing? Communist China, oppressive Africa, in Russia, it's flourishing where it is oppressed because they understand sacrifice. And now we turn away from our faith if someone makes fun of us on Facebook. Man, I got unfriended. Oh. And the fathers of our faith lost their heads in the Colosseum. I dare say the North American church is not ready. We're not ready for sacrifice. We constantly say, I would die for Christ. Well, that's easy. Will you live for him? It's easy to take a bullet for someone. It's very hard to live day by day by day by day until Christ returns. That is difficult. We speak of sacrifice, but I'm not sure if we're there yet. So Peter's response, man, man, Peter's response. As Jesus turned around, Peter speaks for the 12, I guess really only 11 because one of them's full of the devil, right? Or about to be. Not literally the devil, but he's gonna be filled with the devil later. We'll get to that. 
But Peter looks at him and he says, Lord, to who else will we go to? You're the one that holds the words to eternal life. We are convinced, we are persuaded. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's an answer. Now, most of, in this, most of us in this room, we know this answer. We know this. What is the answer? Jesus. Jesus, you're the answer. You hold the words to eternal life. But we're not talking about where we should go. We're talking about where we do go. Now, where do we go? When we look to fulfillment, guys, and I'm not making fun of you. I'm right in here with you. Where do I go when I get stressed? Where do I go when I feel under pressure? Where do I go when I need to escape? Where do I run to? Where do we run to? I know where I should run, but it's not where I always run. So where does our culture run? Where do we find our nourishment? Where do we find our validation? Where do we find our identity, our hope? Do we find it in popularity? No, Corey, that's a high school thing. If I looked at a lot of your Instagrams and Facebooks, I think some of you were still in high school. I do it too, guys. I'm just as guilty. Flippin' dressed up as Run DMC the other day and posted a picture of it, right? <laughs> so yeah, you're welcome, you're welcome. Spoiler alert, but wait till you get your Christmas cards from the church. We take ourselves very seriously around here, guys. But where do we find our nourishment and popularity? We've created a culture that we, we find our value on how many likes we have. Do we find our validation in money or our nourishment and contentment in money? Our sexual desires, we find our identity and our sexual preference and we find our worth and how many people we've been with or how sexy we are. And that's why we have, guys, we're just honest. That's why we take so many pictures of ourselves. So we can somehow be sexually validated. So we can somehow think that we're attractive and that people are attracted and drawn to us. And we find some kind of validation or nourishment in that. Some of us find it in just careless indifference. Well, I, what about your future? I don't know. What about your salvation? I don't know. What about our city? I don't know. What about the state of our government? I don't know. What about world hunger? And we find some kind of comfort in the fact that we just don't take any stance on anything. We're just indifference. We're apathetic. We get into bizarre beliefs, right? Corey, what are you talking about? Again, I talked talked about that book, The Secret, recently. We have this bizarre belief that if we just think about something long enough by positive thinking that that sports car I want or that trophy wife or whatever the case may be, that it will show up. Some clown wrote that book and made millions off of it, laughing all the way to the bank, knowing that it's bull. We find our nourishment in materialism. Tis the season, right? I'm not knocking on you Black Friday people, though I think you're a little weird. The Black Friday people. But it used to be we would just go out on Black Friday, right, the day after Thanksgiving. Look what's happened. Materialism is successfully killing a family holiday. Thanksgiving. The irony is just mesmerizing that a day that we're to set aside, shut everything down and be thankful for what we have, all we can do is think about saving a couple hundred bucks on Wednesday on a TV that we're gonna throw away in three years. We are literally sacrificing time with our family unit. Guys, let me just put you on the hot seat for a second. I'm not very close to my family. Mother lives in St. Louis, sister lives in Chicago. My dad doesn't speak to me. So when you guys save a couple hundred bucks on a TV so you can, you know, you can do that and, and sacrifice time with your family, that makes me angry because you have something I don't have and you need to take advantage of it and you need to be thankful for it and you need to not squander that. TVs will come and go. Family, you only have one of those. Marriages, you only have one of those, hopefully. Kids, you have one of those. 
Those things are important. But we find our comfort, we find our value, we find some kind of sick satisfaction out of gaining more stuff. Sadism. Now, Corey, you're just reaching here. Corey, you think we're a culture that gets aroused by violence and violent eroticism. That is crazy. You're reaching now. You guys want to know what the ninth best-selling book of all time is? Ninth. I don't expect you to know this. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anyone ever read that? Any C.S. Lewis fans? A couple of you in here? Great book, right? I got two copies in my office. Great book. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has sold 85 million copies in the United States. 85 million. That's a lot. Written 50, 60 years ago. Great book. Do you know what beats that by 15 million copies? Fifty Shades of Grey. But Corey, my husband looks at porn. How dare he? You're just reading the transcript of it and fantasizing about it. Lust is lust, and it's wrong. And there are some things, guys, you can work all day long to convince me that it's okay, and it's not. I've read excerpts from that book. I've seen a lot of crazy junk in my life, and I read excerpts from that book that made me blush. And there's a whole generation of Christian women. Well, it's just good for my marriage. Is it? A book about sadomasochistic sex before marriage is good for you? That's good for your soul. It's good for you to feed yourself. Tell me that we're not a culture that gets sexually aroused by violence. Look at us. Look at us. Hedonism, well, it doesn't hurt anyone. It always hurts somebody. It hurts you. Doing whatever you want to do all the time is bad for you. It's bad for your friends. It's bad for your family. It's bad for those partners that you have that you're spiritually deteriorating. I'd love to give you the statistics sometimes on what porn does and what casual sex does, especially to women. What it does to their psyche, what it does to their confidence. I'd like to tell you the suicide statistics in the adult film industry and the hedonism and what it's doing to our culture. Or we find our nourishment in activism. Not all activism is bad, but we've become a culture that finds our identity in saying no. I don't have any solution to the world's problems. I just know that I don't like anything. I don't have any constructive criticism. I don't want to change the world. I just want to say no to everything. Most of the activism that goes on in our culture right now, Martin Luther King, the greatest activist that's ever lived, would not agree with any of it. Martin Luther King wouldn't start building, uh, wouldn't start buildings on fire and start wrecking and rioting and doing some of the garbage that we do. He'd be appalled by that. Why? Because he was a Holy Spirit-filled pastor. He was a good man a man that had a good, strong message, and he would not agree with what we've done with activism. And we found our identity with that. You know what, guys? I'm going to just lay it out to you. The world will not change by you putting a bumper sticker on your car. It will not change. The world will change when you engage, go and engage the hearts and mind of men and women. When we love them, when we show them the truth, when we present to them the gospel, then the world will start to change. So, practically speaking, how are all these things working? I ask you guys this question all the time. Is Fifty Shades of Grace saving marriages by the droves? <laughs> is, it, is, is pornography making our culture better? Is hedonism, is materialism, is the bizarre cults that we keep creating? Is seeking fame and fortune and is careless indifference and apathy? All these things making it a better place to live? Are families healthier? Are marriages better? Are people more confident? Are we walking around with a better sense of worth? No, of course not. It's a laughable proposition that these things have made the world a better place. But this is the state of our world. 
set. You can even prove it by the numbers. Okay, so that's not the right direction, so it is the right direction. You know what I'm going to say, right? It's Jesus. But I have to be honest with you because Jesus was honest with the people that came to Him. Jesus said, if you're going to come to me, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to stretch you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to push you. Any of you who've ever had a good coach, any of you who've had a good mentor, what good coaches and mentors do is they push you to your limits. They show you that you could do far more than you ever thought you could do. And Jesus came to show us that you're worth a lot more than you ever thought you were. Young lady, you're worth more than promiscuity and sharing yourself with all these men. You're a child of God made for one man, meant to take care of you, commissioned by God to make sure that you're all right. And so we sell ourselves short and we think because the work is hard, because the effort is there, that we turn away from it. We don't want that. But anything of great value has a great cost. It has a great, it has a great effort that comes with it, a great price. And speaking of great price, Jesus paid a tremendous one. And listen, I know my work does not make him love me anymore. I know that. He died for me while I was still a sinner. I know that my work does not make him love me more. I know that my work does not earn my way into heaven. I know that. I know those things. And though I can never earn his grace though, because I've been saved by grace, because I didn't earn this relationship with God, that puts something in the Christian heart. When we start to accept his grace, it plants a seed in the Christian heart that should want to work our ever-loving tails off to serve and sacrifice for the God that so graciously saved us. Does it make him love me more? No. But if I can show his love to others, if I can give him glory by what little I can do. Yes, it takes work. Yes, it takes effort. But we get one shot at this life. One. And what we do at this life will echo forever and ever and ever and ever. Are some of you tired? I'm sure you are. Are some of you worn out? I'm sure you are. But I just want to tell you to keep pushing forward. Keep pushing forward. Don't grow tired of doing good things for others. Pick up your Bible and read it. You need this book more now than you've ever needed it. You need the words, the words of eternal life, Peter said. Jesus, you hold the words to eternal life. It's here. It's here. Pick it up and read it. Pray. Make it a point. I'm going to print out some prayer things by next week and we'll have them out there, kind of a prayer schedule. Get in the habit of praying, talking to him. I know it takes work. I know you're tired. I know it's getting up early or staying up late. I know that it's awkward at first to pray with your spouse or your kids, but make the effort to do these things and you will find a contentment, a permanent, everlasting, eternal commitment that sex and money and popularity and drugs and hedonism and activism, none of these things can provide. None of these things can provide. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that. But it's that commitment piece. It's that every single day. It's that every single weekend. I can't turn off my faith just because I had a birthday. I can't turn off my faith just because I'm out with some friends. I can't turn, out my, turn off my faith because I'm out of state and no one's going to know. It's every single day, eating the bread of life, drinking the living water and being filled by it. 
Would you bow your heads with me, please? For the people in this room who have, you know if you're being honest, you have run to things that are unhealthy. Or maybe you've even run to things that if done in moderation, they may be fine, they might be healthy, but you've made them your source of nourishment. There's a lot of you in this room that are exhausted, you're spent, you're worn out, you can't find contentment. There are some of you in this room that struggle with your worth, your self-worth. You struggle with your identity. You struggle with being validated and affirmed. For those of you that are struggling with those things, especially during this season, I want to tell you, you may find temporary relief from the things of this world, but the only way you will find permanent validation, permanent contentment, permanent affirmation, the only way you'll find that is if you build a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do that? If you are in this room today, whether you've been a Christian for forever or you're new or whether you haven't even made that decision yet, if you will ask Jesus Christ to forgive you because you've run to other things, if you will ask Jesus Christ to forgive you for maybe the thoughts you've had or the actions you've done, He is quick to forgive. He will forgive you instantly if you're genuine about it. He will forgive you right now. Quicker than I can speak right now, He will forgive you. And if you've been forgiven, now comes the commitment part, guys. That means tomorrow you gotta pray. That means tomorrow you gotta pick up your Bible and just read a chapter. Read two chapters, just a little bit. It means we have to start building up that relationship with Him. And if we will start building up that relationship with him, he'll take care of us. Guys, there's communion all the way around this room that represents the body and blood of Jesus. Anyone can take that as long as they've asked God to forgive them. Please be respectful of people's communion time. There's people up at the front, on the right and left. If you need prayer for anything, let them come pray for you. Come up here and just let them lay hands on you and pray for you. And if there's anyone in this room that's struggling with their faith or they, maybe they don't believe, If you would just have enough courage to bow your heads and with your audible voice say, God, if you're up there, send someone or help me feel you or show me what to do. And I believe if you're genuine, God will do it. Lord, we love you. God, I pray, Lord, that you let us focus on what's good. I pray that you let us focus on what's eternal. I pray, God, that we focus on your body and your blood, not the things I I want, not the things I I want for myself, God, but what you want for me, what you know that I need, God. I pray that you provide our daily bread, Lord. I pray that you are the sustenance and you are the everything, you're the satisfaction that we're looking for, God. Touch my brothers and sisters and keep them safe until we meet again. You're so good, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are so welcome to help yourself. For prayer, communion, just make yourself at home.